I'm Dr. Sharon Dukes. And I'm Melvin Dukes. We're HBC graduates, proud educators, and most importantly, husband, husband and wife. wife. And you're listening to After School, School Talk, Talk Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of After School Talk, where I am your co-host, Mr. Dukes, and you are your other co-host, Dr. How you doing, Doc? I'm great. That's good. That's good. We're still going through this quarantine, quarantine stuff. It's been a long time, but I ain't rushing. I'd rather get back to it when things are safe, clear, sound, everybody doing great. Um, even though Georgia, uh, even though Georgia my okay. Jesus, <laughs> Governor uh, Kemp from Georgia is, boy, he making all kind of headlines. Got the president hollering at him, got CNN hollering at him, got the mayor of Augusta where they... And of course, everybody knows we uh, we got Augusta National here, the Masters Tournament. Our mayor was on um, was on CNN talking like this Georgia stuff is crazy. With it opening back up, that's crazy, man. Yeah, but for us that are in Georgia, we're pretty much staying in the house. Staying in the house. Don't get it twisted. We ain't moving fast at all. Right. Um, but for today, we decided um, we've been trying to figure out what topics we want to cover um, during quarantine time because there's a lot of things that we could talk about. Um, but uh, one thing we want to take advantage of is the fact that a lot of the people, experts, friends, family in our lives that we want to join the podcast, they're, they're all at the house. Right. <laughs> so now we can send a link, Zoom, um, Zencast, or whatever we have to do to get these people on the episode. So this week, we have Chris Baxter. And this airs, um, this is going to air um, on a Friday, but today, the day that we're recording, it's his birthday. It's his birthday. Happy birthday to my dog, C. Baxter. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday to me. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Uh, yes, no problem. Um, so, Chris and I met um, because we were used to be uh, co-workers when we worked for an admissions office at a university, and we have been linked up ever since. Um, we both uh, eventually started working for the school system where um, we both were serving in the support staff role. So, Chris became a school counselor. Is it school counselor? Is it school counselor? School counselor, yeah. Right. I know we, we talk about those terms. We'll talk about that. But um, I want people to have a good understanding of your background. Um, so, could you tell them the story or just a little bit about growing up your experience with, with um, your own school counselor? Uh, yeah, growing up, um, to be honest with you, growing up, I didn't I didn't know what school I didn't know what school counselor was. I don't. I'm pretty sure uh, there may there. It was likely that there wasn't even a school counselor in the building um, back when I was in um, elementary school for sure. Uh, middle school maybe. Um, um, I had I had school counselors in high school, but uh, I didn't even uh, interact with a school counselor in high school until my senior year, and that was to do. Uh, some schedule stuff at the beginning of the year, and then uh, I know towards the end of the year, my uh, my counselor helped me a lot with um, transcripts, obviously for college, and doing an application because I'm a first generation college student. Okay. So you went through twelve, if you count kindergarten, thirteen years of school without having a one on one meeting with your counselor. Yes. That's crazy. <laughs> like that is, I. We, I, you know, our high school wasn't that big, but still, there was only one counselor in the building, and I still don't see how she managed 
to work with all of us, but to think about ninth or twelfth grade not having that person until the end, I can't even imagine that happening. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because I can I can halfway understand where Chris is coming from just because I think a lot of times we forget that we were the more fortunate kids even in in our school and our parents were in education so we kind of knew a little bit about our counselors and stuff like that so it was it was kind of important for us to get to know the counselor and talk to the counselor and stuff like that but there were probably several students in our school that never went and talked to our counselors one-on-one so you know, other than just, hey, I need a transcript to go to this school. That was probably it. So, but I guess I think, well, you know what? We'll get into all that later. But yeah, <laughs> this is a whole podcast by itself, to be honest. Right, it's a podcast by itself. Oh my gosh, that's all right. Um, but what's interesting is that you did not have that much interaction with your counselor, but you still, in turn, decided to go into counseling, even to the point where. You are now a PhD student for counseling. Yeah, now that's yeah. Um, well, I try, I try to be brief. You know, I like to take forty-five minutes to tell a five-minute story. Uh, <laughs> I, I started. Uh, so you you talked about we how we met in the admissions office. That was my first um, interactions with school counselors. Um, in terms of being at an age um, where I could sort of get an understanding of what's a part of their job was. Because, you know, as, as recruiters, you talk to the high school counselors, like, daily, setting up visits, talking about um, applications, transfer, all that kind of stuff. So that's how I got a little bit of insight into what school counselors did in terms of college and career readiness. So I, was, I got really interested in that. And so um, then what I started to do was explore the counseling piece, the actual therapy piece of counseling. And when I did that, when I, when I started just independently looking into that, um the just the, the the methodology of counseling the framework of counseling um working from a wellness model opposed to a medical model like they do in psychology and psychiatry um that was when i knew i was like all right this is something that i'm interested in i'm passionate about and i really want to become a lot more knowledgeable and experienced with so that's how i ultimately decided to go into counseling and then i wanted to work in the school setting and i wanted to work with children and adolescents in the school. So that's how I ended up even more specifically going into school counseling. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. So it's, you you get introduced to it in admissions office where you're like, okay, this is deeper than I thought because I didn't have an interaction before. And then that puts you on to go ahead and say, well, I want to pursue it as a career and even uh, um, getting a higher degree. In. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Now, I know this really quickly. Um, we talked about how once you got into uh, school counseling, you found out that it was not as, uh, what's the word? Pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> it is not pleasing at all. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. Uh, is there a specific thing you would like for me to address about that? Because. <laughs> uh, basically you're like that's going to turn into 45 minutes right, right, right. <laughs> well I guess, you know we talk about the podcast a lot about the responsibilities of the support staff even the teachers administrators yeah, right. is not exactly in line with the curriculum of counseling or the curriculum of education becoming a teacher yes. and then you get into it and find out you want me to do bus duty every day yes. or you you know i'm working on schedules or i'm working on right um i'm doing stuff more with social work than i am with 
you know, social emotional, social emotional learning. Absolutely, yeah. That that was that was probably one of the. Um, and to be fair, while I was in my training in my bachelor's program, um, there was a lot of discussion about that. A lot of this is what your role was intended to be, but there's a lot of discrepancies between your training versus the realities for school counselors. So you have a little bit of awareness. So you're not as you know, sort of culture shocked by it, but you still are to a degree because you're like, nah, it ain't gonna be that bad. But my, so my personal experience with it was, nah, I'm gonna try to get ahead of some of that. So I'm gonna be very proactive. I'm gonna have a schedule, I'm gonna plan. I'm gonna make sure I do like PLs on um, the role of the school counselor, why mental health is important and why it's important to talk about it in schools how it looks to specifically collaborate with teachers and social workers and psychologists and administrators and the speech therapists and all of, all of the other folks in the building. Um, and, you know, I, and it, so and it didn't quite matriculate the way that I thought it would. You know, I still was met with a lot of challenges. And, and um, first and foremost, just shout out to anybody working in the school building that's pulling all these extra duties that don't have nothing to do with your job. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's not just school counselors. I mean, it's teachers are asked to do things that are just wildly just extra. Um, even even you know, I, I've worked with other people in student supports who uh, had caseloads, and by caseloads, it was one person and it was like twenty five plus schools. And while they were, they were at their school, the schools that were assigned to for certain days, they were pulling extra duties that were absolutely outside of their. Uh, professional roles and responsibilities. So um, I know I, I I always appreciated everybody's willingness to, to do that, to do those extra duties. But I also want to validate anybody that's been feeling like, man, this is just not something I'm supposed to be doing and I could be doing much better things with my time. I want to validate that because you're right. Right. True calling because you're being pulled in so many different directions. Absolutely. Right? Um, so uh, we, we <laughs> I know that you are in this PhD program, and I know from uh, working with you over the years that a lot of the uh, context that you are learning now has been really um, eye-opening to really thoughts that you already had, but now you are able to attach it to a word or attach it to a theory. And one thing in particular you and I have had several conversations about is this, um, the, the fact that the counseling program is really helping to establish the understanding of diversity and inclusion, but also like your own, uh, I guess you would say like your own, how it, how it has affected your own life, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so. Yeah, and so we we had talked about earlier about the the um, concept of white privilege, right? So can you tell us a little bit about what your program has taught has discussed with you about um about your white privilege? White privilege, so very generally, white privilege is it's just the it's the privileges that you have because you are a white person. Uh, and that's a very, very broad yeah. definition. Um, and I also would just like to encourage anybody to to go and do some research on white privilege. Um, you know, really dive into you know what it means, and also understand that white privilege is it's not the absence that you you that a white person has maybe has struggled in life, or that uh, a white person has not had to work hard for the things that they have. Um, it's a very systemic based, very systemic driven um, concept. Um, it's it challenges you to th it challenges you to think more about 
how many opportunities have I had because of my white status, because of my whiteness? And it's essentially geared around the structure of systems and that the systems, especially in this country, were designed by white people. So they are largely informed. I mean, they are 100% informed from the perspective of white people. Like, when I tell y'all sitting here, like, I have a zillion questions. <laughs> because we, oh gosh, we, from the minority standpoint, is, is, you know those concepts, right? So you, you, we walked into different situations and experienced racism and knew that it was systemically in place, right? But for you as a white male, once a professor or somebody says this to you in class, what's your initial feeling? Well, to, to be to be transparent, um, it honestly depends on what stage uh, that, a, that a white person is in in their white identity development. Um, and that's, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother, that, again, that could be a whole nother podcast. Um, but essentially, like, so for me personally, me personally, um, I actually had my white, pri- my white privilege processing moment uh, a few years ago. Um, so by the time I got to my doctorate program and we really started diving into um, white supremacy culture, uh, white privilege, white fragility, all of these different um, deconstructions of whiteness, essentially, um, you know, I had I had gone through a lot more steps in the process of my white identity development. So it was being able to, you know, acknowledge like, Yep, we got some seriously oppressive systems, and um, and those systems are all white supremacy culture is sort of ingrained very subconsciously, and a lot of times very obviously in a lot of those systems. And so once I started critically thinking in that way, um, I was able to sort of have that. I hate I hate the phrase "aha" moment. I, I just don't like cliches, but I use them all the time. Maybe that's why they're so. Um, anyway. <laughs> so, so um, for me, um, it was so in the doc program when I saw we started really deconstructing it. We also started talking a lot more about um, like narrative theory, uh, critical race theory, relational cultural theory, feminist theory, black feminist thought, um, and all of those are different. Um, theories and different things um, centered around people's narratives and their lived experiences. And so for me, that was really impactful because that's completely, it's changed me in so many ways. It's changed me professionally. More importantly, it's changed me personally. Um, but it really, it really puts value on people's lived experiences because who are we to tell anybody that something they've experienced is a lie? And so, yeah, so that, that was for me, learning about white privileges and white privilege in the way that I did and deconstructing it. Um, that's how it sort of happened. Very, very generally, I was like, white privilege. No, I don't have white privilege because, like, you know, I didn't live in a big house up on the hill and my parents didn't make six figures and my parents, you know, which is the general reaction. And then it's like, no, that's not what it's saying. That's not, that's not at all what it's saying. Um, <clears throat> And then it was it was definitely like a when I started examining it more and thinking about how systemic it was, I was like, oh, yep, I'm absolutely privileged. I'm 100% privileged. 
In mm-hmm. fact, you know, my for me personally, I'm privileged in every way because I'm a white heterosexual male. So I got all the privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Acknowledging that one, you know, understanding it, understanding it, and then really learning about what my role is at, um, in terms of advocacy, in terms of um, multicultural competence and awareness, being inclusive, appreciating diversity, and really just being somebody that's going to, um, you know, validate people's lived experiences and be someone that's willing to hear somebody say, you know, yeah, this is racist. Like this is, these are racist experiences that I've had. These are ageist experiences that experiences I've had. These are ableist experiences that I've had and be like, you know what? You're absolutely right. And for me, so there's two things and I know I don't turn this into a 45 minute story. I apologize. <laughs> Go with it. Two things that are really, that have become very important for me, um, both personally and professionally. So when I work with clients or students or when I'm working with my students in terms of, um, instruction, um, it is one acknowledging that I am not the great white hope. I don't have the answers and the answers don't have to come from me. And mm-hmm. um, two, that, um, you know, I understand that, that I, I am white privilege um, and that I have a responsibility to to, to, to be accepting and to be validating and to, and to take on the accountability and the responsibility. When I go into a space to verbalize and, and acknowledge my power and privilege dynamic in, certain, in, in all the spaces, um, and in, in all of that to say in the hopes of creating a space where people feel empowered to ask questions, to share their stories, to be themselves, and whatever that, whatever that looks like for them to be themselves, that's what I hope people can be um, with me personally and professionally. Right, right. Do you, when you all are having these kind of conversations that are, I, it, it seems like the, the courses and everything is creating this moment of you peeling back the layers to yourself do you ever have any peers or classmates who are not peeling back or disagreeing with what's going on yeah i mean definitely and and like i said earlier it just it really depends on where people are um because um it depends are there phases to the to the white identity development? There are, there are, there are phases to it. This, um, again, without going into a whole other podcast about it, um, very, very generally, it's how a white person um, kind of ebbs and flows throughout deconstructing whiteness. So that's like confronting racist ideologies, you know, figuring out, um, understanding the whole privilege dynamics. Um, and then thinking very critically and intentionally about how and what decisions they need to make in their personal lives to move um, move away from essentially systemically racist and oppressive um, thoughts and, and actions and all those different things. I definitely encourage anybody, not just not just white people, anybody really to go. Um, and read about identity development in general, but definitely specifically white identity development. Mm. 
So is it is the idea that if I go through white identity development and I am able to, like you said, confront um, race, uh, systemic racism, or best way to this best way to break this down because. <laughs> You know, Chris be throwing out the big words. He has a, he has a PhD. I'm right. listening like, great, damn, I ain't that advanced yet. <laughs> well, I'm doing it because I wrote it all down before I got here, so I remember. Listen, <laughs> you'll be like me. Once, once that dissertation gets turned in, your brain turns off. Like, all right, it's done. I don't want to think anymore. Um, but the question is, is it, it, this is supposed to help you as a counselor become more aware of your clients? Of their of their experiences, how how does it help you in your in your relationship with your client? Yeah, um, for their, so as the counselor, what what it does is is and see for me again, me being a white male, being just being a white person, I I've done this myself. So what it what it really does is it it informs you on sort of again what the process is, and then. So, so for clients and students, it helps you as the counselor kind of recognize in some ways where people might be, if that makes sense. So like if I'm working with a client or a student and they're harboring, um, let's just, let's just say, for example, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm talking a lot today. I'm in quarantine for months. I ain't talking this much. In- <laughs> yeah, both are like, what's going on? <laughs> so, but like, but so let's just, let's just say we that I have a client that is um that's a, that's a white person, and let's just say their their family or their whatever their cluster support group of people, you know, their norms are are racist, but this particular individual is really having some problems with that, and right now they're they're navigating back and forth between like i don't feel this in my heart of hearts like i don't agree with this and i can't be this way but i'm not sure i'm ready to full-on move away from it like you know vocally and stand up to this because i might be a little like hesitant because what what might what might happen with my support group at that point in time so understanding white identity development tells me as the counselor that where that person sort of is in that process so they, they've they've recognized and they acknowledged and they started to have some feelings about hey like this you know what's going on here is not right. But what they haven't been able to do yet is get to that point where they they've made the decision to like all right you know what this is not right I don't I don't this is not the way it's supposed to be I've got to move on from this and whatever happens with the support group happens. Mm. You know what that made me think about um, is that I remember my first time in grad school versus my second time is that the curriculum started getting very heavy in um, like critical race theory and um, uh, just multicultural diversity, inclusion, all those kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. But if we go back to the counselors that were for us, and I don't want to say back in the day because we're not that old, but <laughs> but for us, they may not have had the same courses, which would make sense as to why. One thing I remember with our county in particular is that our county went to the, um, everybody was on a college prep track for getting their diploma, right? And I can remember thinking, well, that's not 
necessarily good. Some students need to be on a tech prep track. But a black teacher who was, um, who I would consider an elder, was like, oh no. She said, mm-mm, because all the white counselors did was put all the black kids on the tech track, tech prep track, right? right? So I'm like, wow. Which, which, which is crazy to think that a counselor would be doing something systemically to hinder the minority students, but that's what was going on. Hence why we had to look into, okay, so why are all the black kids on tech prep and white kids on college prep? Are you, are, you, are you asking me? <laughs> Chris is like, I ain't answering for all white people. Go ask that question. <laughs> I gotta answer. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was like, it's more so the thinking, thinking of, that I can see how those things could be happening. Yeah. And really and truly, they're still happening. It's, I, I just recently sat in on a dissertation defense where, um, the uh, person was a special ed teacher and was saying how all of the black males in particular were being pushed to the special ed track. But when we are not honest with what your decision making process is based on what you, you know, you're, you're not understanding the lived in experiences of your students, then we're not going to have the best practice. Right. Right. No, 100%. And, and you know, it's, it's not, this, this is a very general, general comment. When when individuals when professionals don't have a specialized training and this and this is in, in no way to say that people are lacking or incapable it's just it's just very quite literally when people aren't trained in specific things they don't necessarily have a certain awareness about stuff and so what they end up doing is they end up drawing on their experience and all they have to really inform their decision process are their own experiences. So if prior, if their prior experiences have been, oh yeah, these kids are here, these kids are here, this happens here, and this is like that, that's what happens because they have nothing else to draw from, which is why, especially in the school setting, it is critical to, to really collaborate with the other professionals in the building and get their insights on things. That's true. That's crazy. <laughs> Not crazy. It makes sense. It makes yeah, definitely makes sense. Because I mean, if you 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 draw your own uh, conclusions or making decisions based off your own experiences, you already biased from the jump. Yeah. Off of like you say, based it's, it's solely based on what you've already experienced. So if I've only experienced, let's just say, racism, then whenever I apply something, I'm gonna automatically think, oh, this is a racist uh, person, or this is a racist comment, or this is a racist situation, and that's all I'm going off of, as opposed to you know, getting some kind of understanding of different backgrounds, different cultures, different experiences, and stuff like that, then you have something to, to really, I guess, go through the process with. Because we don't even offer that opportunity for our students. Though. And I'm, I'm going to tell you how I'm bringing it in. When we were working in our first school, it's probably at that time, it was the most diverse school in our county, okay? Oh, yeah. And everybody got along, everybody was pretty cool, you know, no problems. But when Obama won, I, it, just, just the best way I can put it to you. The second, yeah, when Obama won the second time, yeah, I was in grad school. Yeah. So when Obama won the second time, our black students came to school and were in shock at the white students because the same kids that they they were cool with, they went to games with, we had the pet rallies, having a good time with teammates. And now on Twitter making racist remarks, and they're like, "But I thought we were friends. Mm-hmm. I thought we were cool." And there's no space 
there was no, at that time there was no space in the building to say, hey, we need to talk about some things and apply these right. theories to these conversations in some type of programming format, some type of forum, something like that. It was just like the black kids realized, like, oh, right. oh, we go to school with some kids. Right. Well, because it's 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 all fun and games until the status quo gets shifted. When people who are traditionally and historically and systemically marginalized, um, when the perception by the dominant cultural norms is that those folks finally have got a little bit of power, and I use use air quotes for power because sometimes these are loaded terms. Whenever that happens, the dominant culture is not it's not fun anymore. We got we got to do something about this. We got we got to take care of this. And the way the dominant culture sort of in their mind regains that power is by racist tweets, racist TikToks, like the kids posted, got in trouble for what last week. That's how those particular individuals regain their comfort, their sense of power, their sense of normalcy by doing things like that. And and you get and you get there's a great point you just made about how there are very few spaces. Um, particularly particularly in the education setting, a K-12 education, where you can have real honest and open conversations around race. Because mm. somebody always gonna get offended or take things a little too or far. We, or we put out we put out a quick PR and go keep them moving. Yeah. It's like yeah, so that you can say we addressed it, but it really doesn't it really didn't get addressed. You right. make a very you make the most generic positionality statement you can come up with. And then you you dipping and you moving on to the next thing. Yeah. And you okay, so you brought up, for example, the situation that happened a couple weeks ago. And for those who don't know, um, a couple, because apparently this is her boyfriend, teenage couple, seventeen years old, a white male and white female, made a TikTok video where they had on a piece of paper the N word in a bathroom sink, and they said we're about to make N words, like they're about to put ingredients together to make N words. And some of the ingredients was doesn't have a dad, um, mm. robs people, and it particularly robs white people, mm. uh, eats fried chicken and watermelon. Yeah. Um, one was make good decisions, but that cup was empty. There was nothing in the cup for making decisions. And then um, goes to jail, goes to jail. which they completely flooded the sink for goes to jail. Yeah. And then the school put out the statement that those students have been expelled and that, you know, they don't tolerate this. Boom. But I'm definitely interested in hearing, I would love to hear from the black students at that school. Because right. you know how sometimes you're like, this has been going on. Like, we, we're not, it's, it's similar to the situation in Georgia Southern. When I found out that the students had stood in front of that lady's like hotel room or something and burned her book, I had students who graduated from Georgia Southern that was like, um, that dude, they've been racist. Right, like, right. <laughs> this campus has had things growing like this, yeah. you know before but sometimes it's like um i think back to my days of working in grad school some campuses will offer the opportunity and say let's come let's get together and they have great speakers come in but the it just seemed like the other students don't think it's for them they think it's for for the black kids that's no other way to put it yeah it's like no we're not we we don't have a problem problem. problem. (laughs) y'all got issues y'all just perform to how we're doing things and we'll be all right yeah if you if you if you feel like this ain't for you, then that that's pretty that's a pretty good indication that you need to go. Yeah. You know, yeah. You to- even and even if it my thing is even if even if something like that is not for you, go to uh possibly give your own enlightenment 
um, you know, give your own experiences and stuff like that. But, you know, for something as serious as this type of situation, it's kind of hard to say it's not for me or it's not for you. Because, like I said, at the end of the day, even if you don't necessarily agree to it, you can still put in your two cents as to why you feel the way you do. And that could possibly start some kind of conversation to move on to something else or, or you know, just, just get everybody on the same page. No, 100%. 100%. And, and it's – honestly, it's part of um... – part of part of privilege part of fragility why specifically white privilege and white fragility is you have the ability and you have the option to not attend stuff like this you distance yourself from these racially um these racially driven conversations or any or conversations about systemic racism and oppression and different things you, you make those choices to isolate yourself and get away from it you get away from it is is that what white fragility is that you remove yourself from it? Uh, fright. Um, yeah, I said fright. White fright. Yeah, quite. Yeah, white fright is actually quite what it is. They're afraid of it's it's the it's the fear of engaging in in very 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 in depth conversations around racism. Um, so it's uh, white fragility is just um, it's. It's a fear of getting involved in conversations about race, particularly with people of color. Um, you don't want to have, you don't want to be in the room when they're having those conversations. You don't want to have, you don't want to engage in that discourse. You don't want to talk about it. Mm-hmm. And you go around, you're talking about it. You find a way to kind of ease out, or you want to change the subject. Um, um, if you deep, okay, so <laughs> sorry. If you if you deep dive into it, into white fragility. You'll hear people talk about um, the uh, white people lack the endurance to have hard racially driven uh, conversations, conversations about race. Um, and um, and again, this is not this is not every single white person you're going to meet. But again, just speaking very generally, just speaking just to just to define the terminology. That's that's what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got you. So, you know, this makes me think about, I'm about to go back in the day, and me and Chris like to reminisce on old stuff anyway. Um, I always remember, if you can go to the original reality TV show with the real world, racism would get brought up on the show, the real world, like in some type of format. Um, the, even the very, the very first season of New York, Kevin Powell got into it with a girl, and he is now an author, he goes around the world talking about racism and race and all those kind of things. But what always tends to happen is the person is going to turn to being the, the white person. Um, and I can say always in the show, it always happens like this um, that they're the victim. So they figure out how to get out of the conversation and start crying or something. I mean, this is why Twitter has been calling uh, white women who cry Karen for like the last couple of days. Because it's like, well, no, you're yelling at me. I don't know why you're yelling at me. And it's like, wait, it's not, no, that's <laughs> not what's happening. We're having a conversation. Let's just talk. And I mean, even now, they um have new episodes. I think of, I think they do it through like some type of streaming service of YouTube. And um, what's the poet guy, Melvin? Just, just, po- just oh, he does the one minute thing. Anyway, he uh has a similar situation where he's calmly talking in the kitchen and they just are, you all, you people always want to blame us. And he's like, I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just 
<laughs> I'm just having a conversation with you. But it's like they don't want to enter into that conversation too deep because it becomes where they feel offended. Yeah, absolutely. There's your. I'm 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 not laughing at anybody. I'm just laugh. I'm I'm thinking about some of my own experiences, but um, <laughs> just just generally, it's it's yeah, it's it's if if you say hey racism is real it happens it happened it's happening probably will continue to happen um and someone says it's someone yeah they tell us yeah they take it personally they take it personally they get mad they're like i'm not racist and then you get the you know insert number of black friends here response right right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and it's like so 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 for me Part of, part of the the experience of, of sort of accepting or, uh, yeah accepting acknowledging and accepting white my white privilege you know it really is like you know yeah like racism like slavery happened it was wrong racism is happening it is wrong systemic racism systemic oppression is still happening and it is a hundred percent wrong and people that look like me are a gigantic part of it um, and, and, and I, that's, that's something that, that I accept. I have to accept it because I can't not accept that. You know what I mean? I can't refuse to accept that, you know, I am a white person and, and that this is the thing and it is happening. And, um, so for me, you know, in those moments, you know, my job, my job is to listen. My job is to listen, is to validate and is to support in whatever ways whoever is talking to me needs or whatever group of people who are talking to me and inviting me into their space needs. That's why I said earlier, I'm not a great white hope. It ain't about me bringing myself into a space and saying, Hey, I got all your resolutions right here. I got everything you need. It's me walking in there, you know, in humility, acknowledging my power and privilege in the dynamic and then saying, you know, tell me your stories, tell me your experiences. Um, and me validating people in any way that I can, supporting them in any way that they need me to. And so, is that is that what you take with you um, to your clients and students? Yeah, to your clients and students. That's that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I teach my school counseling students, I talk about that you know all the time. I spent this entire semester um, talking about um, systemic oppression, systemic racism. Um, just systems in general, how they're designed to oppress, specifically the education system. I mean, I, and I took them way back. I mean, I took them way back. And um, but we talk about white supremacy culture, and we talk about um, just just the power and validation, the power and hearing people's narratives and valuing that as much as we value statistics and numbers and and all of these different things. Um, and again, you didn't hit a nerve. You didn't hit a nerve over here with uh, No, but I'm just like you just like said, and it's it's not always about agreeing, but just hearing somebody out. And I think that's what my issue is. A lot of times, um, some people just don't want to at least hear what somebody else has to say. Like you just said, you recognize the white privilege. You recognize that you are a white heterosexual male and all this kind of stuff. You 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 recognize it. You you have to agree with it and all this kind of stuff. But there's some people that just, no, I don't want to hear it. I'm not a part of that. I don't believe in it. And they're going about their way. But it's like, no, just hear me out. Just just have a conversation about it. And I think that's that's a real big thing. It has been a real big thing for a long time. Just have a conversation. 
you know, and we'll, we'll decide on it. We agree or disagree later on. But that initial piece of just having the conversation is a, a major, major key. That's a major key right there. Right. Just have a conversation. It seems like that goes back to, uh, again, if, if white fragility is an issue, that's why you are stepping away from the conversation. Right. Which is what we see a lot with um, in the news recently with Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. They like if somebody says, "Well, you don't think that you know X, Y, and Z," they immediately are going to know it's you, right? It's you, right? And y'all, and, you know, and no, they, that's not the case. Yeah. No, he don't think like that. No, he don't do that. It's like, but okay. y'all don't even have a, like can we have a conversation without you, like with 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 you at least validating somebody else's experience. Like, even if, like he said, just the stati- if the statistics is one thing, okay. You don't want to look at the numbers. You think that's fake news, but can you validate my experience as a person? Exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, just think about. I mean, think about. You know, the. Um, I guess what popped in my head was you know the issues with police brutality over the years, specifically on yeah. black men. You know, it's it's. The, like people were telling their stories. People were sharing these experiences. Uh, you know, and there's always there's always the people that feel this need to like, did that really happen? Or, I mean, it could have been that bad. Or you know, all, you know, all the things that. Or, or they always say you should just do what the cop said. Just do what the cop tells you. you. Okay. And how many daggone times do people do what they tell them to do, and they still are abused? Mm-hmm. They're still shot. They're still killed. They're still abused. There's still all these things happen. And mm-hmm. very, very quite generally, it's because it's because of racist systems, rules and regulations and protocols and processes. Um, without going into another thirty-day podcast, um, <laughs> it's quite generally designed to oppress. There's there's a very mm-hmm. small and very particular group of people, white people, that are designed to benefit from these things. And everybody else is, is not it's not designed to benefit them in those same ways. And if you think about this, just historically, the founding of this country will make that make sense for people. You know what? Somebody posted, um, I know Janika, who was on our episode um, last week, posted on her Facebook, but I'm not sure who was somebody else I saw post that this com- this country was built on my ancestors sacrificing their life for the economy and I'm not willing to do it again and basically was saying that to say like I'm not going back out in an unsafe environment with the coronavirus still being out just so the CEO of this company can make more money because he's not making money and it is crazy that years later that system is still in place where like you say, this this group of white people who are the billionaires of the world are still controlling the narrative and putting people in a situation where in order for you to take care of your family, you got to come back to work and deal with this virus or or else because I need money for my company. Right. Exactly. And and you know, it's I've been thinking about um, the the reopen people. Everybody was protesting the reopen places. You know, and I've just really been thinking. I've been thinking about what those groups of people, their perspectives, and this is, I haven't, nothing, you know, that I've read or, or, or anything like that has, like, has informed this. I've just been generally thinking in this way. 
I just imagine that there's there's two there's there's two camps there. I think I feel like there's a camp that their day to day privileges and their their access to the things has been taken from them, and they're they're offended. They're mad about it. They 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 want their privileges back. They want to go get the haircuts. They want to go do all the things. And then you have sort of speaking to your point, you have the, this other camp that is possibly wanting things to reopen because out of out of necessity like they have to get back to work to 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 live to pay bills pay mortgages to support their families to do all these things and it's you know i just i was really thinking about how like the the necessity camp how i feel like i can see how their narratives could be manipulated like oh yeah they're with us they want you to reopen too because they're tired of, of everybody. They're tired of our governments telling us that we can't go do stuff and taking away our freedom. And it's like, nah, they're they're mm-hmm. up here because they literally got to. They're they're going to get evicted if they don't go back to work. That's why they're here. Not so they can go get a haircut. Right, and so they, like you said, their narrative is being manipulated to where you 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 are, which is which is what people already said. Trump's whole campaign was built on any, anyway. He knew that whites. Um, poor whites in particular needed somebody to be there. I guess you could say what their voice, their um, spokesperson, yeah. and he was there to say, "Hey, yeah, y'all need this." Not realizing like the policies that he put in, he puts in place doesn't help you. Oh, but I'm a, yeah, but I'm gonna use you to get what I want. Yeah, yep. That's boy, and- boy. Look. <laughs> It's 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 so many layers to these things, and I I would love to one definitely have you come back on the podcast again because we could break things down. Even you working in elementary education before, um, being in higher ed, us being in higher ed now, um, working in high schools, so definitely school settings. The way you see uh, systemic processes that don't benefit students um, of color in particular. But even with what we're seeing right now, it it is just like racism is on front street since we've seen those protests. <laughs> and well, really, since Trump has been in office, it's like people have been empowered to say things and do things they really they they would have kept secret. Um, but now it's it's just you say and do what you want to because there is a group of people out there ready to defend you and your white privilege. Absolutely, because and that kind of going back to the, the example I was giving earlier about the ways that people regain their privilege and power when they feel threatened. Um, when your leadership is someone that looks like you and identifies ideologically, you know, all these different ways with you, that empowers people. It empowers people in a way where like they don't have to ever see you face to face or know who you are. You're empowering people thousands of miles away from you in ways that 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 you don't know, and it's because you because you're connecting with them in that way, and that's exactly what what's happening. He is empowering people, um, in in that way, and um, yes, yeah, it's, it's I, I'll just I'll say it. It's tragic. It's tragic. In my mind, it's tragic. Right, right, mm-hmm. and that's MC. There were people who could not stand to see Obama in office. 
and that you know I can relate to what you're saying of he was in turn empowering us we saw him he was doing good things it was like yes like we're so proud and so now there is a group of people who looks at Trump as you you are making us proud you are doing exactly what we want you to do which like I say is tragic that is definitely tragic it's you know a, a striking difference is you know in this country it's very it's, it's, it's more individualistic than it is collectivist. And, oh, yeah. oh my. you know, the, the uh, just the, the, the idea, you know, that each individual person, um, like, it's, it's all about yourself. It's all about the individual. Um, it's not about bettering the collective. And I just, you know, I think about, like, just all of the, the sort of, just think about just my, my family personally. All the, a lot of, some of my most fun, my fondest memories come from the collective moments that we've shared with each other. And times we spent together, times we spent happy times that we were all collectively together, loving each other, encouraging each other. Um, and even in the tough times, it was the same thing where they're supporting each other, we're loving each other, we were, we're doing the best that we could for each other. Um, you know, when I think about personal times in my life where I was trying to individually do something on my own. Um, it was difficult and it was a struggle and it was just like, man, you know, I always thought, well, I always think about like, man, it'd be nice to like have this support, this person, this group of people. Right. And, you know, on a very like, you know, I guess not, I don't want to say superficial level, but very, very basic level. Like, um, that's what you know the work that i'm doing now and and what i work with teach my students here and when i um you know when i'm working with them i really try my best to teach them about one um celebrating celebrating diversity celebrating culture um promoting promoting inclusion and acceptance um and just really and just very, very generally, just just caring about people, it, just just giving a crap about somebody, man. Just care about people. I mean, that, uh, I'm, I'm gonna say this real quick. Um, that's just like uh, I don't know if y'all heard about the mayor in Las Vegas talking about oh. caring about yeah, just speaking on caring about other people. So her thing is, she wants to open up Las Vegas, um, bring open the casinos, restaurants, the whole shebang. But the thing is, she's put the city of Las Vegas on Front Street by saying, we don't mind, you know, kind of giving ourselves to science and, uh, you know, saying what could happen in big crowds and all this kind of stuff. But then Anderson, because Anderson Cooper was the one that was interviewing her, Anderson said, asked her, well, so that means you're going to be out there, you know, at the, at the in the casinos doing your thing and at the restaurant and she was like, Oh, I don't gamble, so I wouldn't be out there. Oh, I don't, I don't go to restaurants. I cook at home, so I wouldn't be out there. So it's like, so what difference does it make if they open up or not? Why do you care so much that the city gets back so quick to get back to, you know, back to what it was before if you don't even participate? And it's like you only thinking about yourself and bringing this, bringing the city money or bringing yourself money or it's, it's nothing but selfish gains in something like that. You're not thinking about, you know, the community, 
um, you know, as soon as you open it up, because Las Vegas is such a popular city, you know, it could it could be shut down in no time, in absolute no time. But because you're not losing and you know you won't lose, it's like, well, hey, let me put it all out there and make sure I'm good on on the you know on the tail end of things. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, they're playing with yeah. house money, not playing with their own money. Right, right, exactly. And you know what? If I think, um, in looking at this, you know, I like to have a hip hop tie into everything. Um, some a way that to me, if you were especially a students of age to have these kind of conversations, there is a clip. Um, I'll post it to our Instagram page at um after school talk of Tupac talking about pretty much like capitalism and things that happen in the United States. And he even referenced Trump. And you're talking about this came out like in. 92 back in 1992 and he said america is nothing but gimme 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 take 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 step on people step on people get 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 and i was like that's we're still in that mentality but you gotta think he he literally said the trump way of doing things and that person that you talked about in 1992 is now over the whole country so we are like further um Incentivizing our politicians and our business to have it. Oh, oh, I got, oh, I got a little degree on it. <laughs> 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 it wasn't that. Look, I, I got into the scope, but um, but it, we, you know, giving the people and empowering them to say like, yes, worry about your business first. Worry about uh, yourself first. And not saying, well, what about the safety of others? It's just like we said right now, open the box schools and send the students back. Parents will go, wait, I don't want my child to be in danger. Right. Yes, right. think about the same thing about an employee or think about the same thing about your the neighbor. your neighbor, yeah. yeah, your friend, your church member or something. Right. Which, is, it, you know, which is the whole point of the social distancing was it's not, it's definitely about keeping you, the individual, safe, but it's also just as much about keeping the people around you who are at risk safe. Right, right. You are trying to prevent yourself from bringing this home to your family (laughs) because it can it could affect your whole household. That is the point. But if you're thinking about them almighty dollar, then hey, you'll be the first sacrificial lamb. Um, okay, yeah. Let me stop. Let me go ahead and stop with us because we'll keep going. And it's your birthday, so you got a a quarantine turn up. You know, quarantine quarantine turn up. up. Yep. Hey, hey, FaceTime is when the time to take our shot. <laughs> we got, we got, you said what? Going, getting ready. That's it. That's it. Yes, sir. I'm talking about food first. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too much. I'm going to go to sleep, bro. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's right. Hey, you already get old. <laughs> you you going to fall asleep as soon as you Again, it went out. Your mic went out when you said that. Oh, I said, I'm just going to get in the meat sweats and go to bed at like 8.30. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't be laughing, uh, Oh, my goodness. Okay. Well, we want to thank Chris for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Um, we want you guys to make sure you go to therightoffect.com. That's T-H-E-R-I-T-E-E-F-F-E-C-T.com and subscribe. Also, go to um, visit us on Instagram at After School Talk. Um, if you have listened to this episode, please share it with somebody else. Subscribe, follow. Um, we are just having conversations, talking about our experiences, talking about how these things shape our schools, shape our education. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode. So go ahead and hit five stars, and we'll see you guys later. Peace.